We're going to start right here, though, locally with a subject that if you blinked, you may have missed. How last Thursday's new modeling for COVID-19 showed that Chinese-dominated Richmond is actually Vancouver's least infected area. So to talk through how having this information maybe a little bit sooner may have helped to stave off possibly some of the anti-Asian racism we've been seeing spike here in Metro Vancouver. We have joining us the Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post. Our good friend Ian Young is on the line. Hi, Ian. Hi, Jody. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for doing this. And I definitely urge all of our listeners to uh, have a have a look at your latest piece in the South China Morning Post. C, sorry, scmp.com is where you can find it. Uh, g- give us a, a little bit of a Coles notes on, on this rather epic, meaty piece that you've written. Yeah, I, I think that um, a lot of the problems um, uh, with the way that COVID-19 is perceived in Vancouver and in Canada in general, I think, are to do with its Chineseness. And I think that, you know, of course, this was a disease that originated in China. Uh, but we have seen a blowback against uh, the Chinese communities here in Vancouver. And we've seen this spike in in hate crimes and we've seen a spike in um, general, general anti, anti-Chinese uh, sentiment. And I think that behind that, there is um, this misperception about Chineseness somehow being at fault for the spread of COVID-19 in Canada. And, I, and what, in fact, has been happening is that very quietly, the uh, most Chinese part of Vancouver, Richmond, uh, has the least infections of, um, of, of any area in Vancouver. And this was borne out in data that came out last week. But why was that data kept secret for months? Um, you know, would that have been useful for the communities in Vancouver to see and to be aware of uh, months ago that Richmond was in fact doing everything right and it was helping protect the rest of the city. And maybe we could have learned something from that earlier on because you and I were speaking literally in January about how empty the food courts were in Richmond. I mean, I think that's how you and I first really met and and the first time we talked on the air was the story after you posted on your Twitter account of Aberdeen Mall's food court at 5 p.m. on a Saturday and it should have been teeming with people and it was absolutely empty. Yeah, I mean, I've sort of been, you know, banging on about this for quite a while about the uh, the response that Richmond had to COVID-19 so long ago uh, when they were socially distancing, didn't know about it by that name at the time, but yes, they were socially distancing and wearing face masks and doing all these laudable things way back in January and uh, generally weren't being recognised for it, weren't being acknowledged and, and praised for it. In, instead, people were sort of sneering at it and regarded it as this kind of weird curiosity. Um, but the data to show that they were doing the right thing or to at least suggest that existed uh, but for one reason or another, the BCCDC decided to keep that stuff secret. That literally jumped off the page on Thursday to me. I said it out loud as we were watching it live, and that slide came up, and Richmond, I went, hey, Richmond, zero. Mm, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, that was quite remarkable that um, I think since, uh, since mid-May there have been zero uh, infections in, in Richmond, and it's the only, the only area of Vancouver to have that uh, that distinction. It's very obvious. And the other thing, of course, too, was the genomic sequencing of the virus, which showed where the various infections that were happening in Vancouver, the Vancouver area, where they originated. And I think a lot of people assumed that this stuff was coming from China because the disease certainly originated there. But in fact, uh, the strains that were blooming and proliferating across Vancouver didn't come from China at all. They were being imported from Europe, from eastern Canada and from Washington state. 
We're with Ian Young, who is the Vancouver correspondent for the South China Morning Post. And I think that might be the the part of your piece that, that I highlighted and underlined and circled was the Wuhan-based strains of COVID were first to arrive in BC, unsurprisingly. And I think Dr. Bonnie Henry has said that. But those quickly fizzled because those infection chains were broken because of the way that the Chinese-Canadian community in Richmond uh, addressed it immediately. And as you said, that includes masks and social distancing, physical distancing, and and self-isolation. Yeah, I think it's quite remarkable that certainly the, the first cases here in, in Vancouver certainly came from, from Wuhan, you know, regardless of where they end up in, in where in Metro Vancouver, whether that's Richmond or Vancouver or North Vancouver or wherever. But the strains right. that arrived here first were from Wuhan. But those, um, those infection chains went nowhere. They fizzled out. They stopped. Uh, now, part of that is because of good behaviour from the people uh, who were infected and the people who were around them. And part of that, is, is, of course, is the good work of the BCCDC through contra- contact tracing and things like that. And people would maybe assume that your article would say, hey, this is, you know, we can put some blame on our health officials here. And you do actually the opposite because you you do point out the fact that likely those who are um, responsible for the horrific uh, anti-Asian racism and the attacks, the hate crimes that have literally spiked four last year during a, the same span. And, and what did the uh, deputy police chief constable, yeah. Howard Chow, tell you? He said How it was many? staggering. He said it was staggering. I think it was 29, 29 uh, anti-Asian hate crimes in the same period, you know, I mean, compared to four so last mm. year. So, I mean, I think it's a remarkable increase, a, a, bad, a bad remarkable increase. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I think that Bonnie Henry is widely beloved in B.C. And for very good reason. She's done an incredible thing uh, uh, here to, to keep um, to keep COVID-19 under control relatively. Uh, but at the same time, you know, th- this data could have been released earlier. And I'm not this is not a, a, a dig at Bonnie Henry specifically because of. Um, some sort of lack of empathy. I think the opposite is true. I think she is an incredibly empathetic person, and she has um, she has been a beacon for BC. Uh, and I think that the withholding of that information um, was actually done possibly for the best of intentions, with the best of intention of avoiding stigmatising the Chinese community. If there had been a big preponderance of cases in in Richmond, for instance, or if there had been a big preponderance of cases via the Wuhan strain. The opposite was true. And so, you know, that stigmatization effect, maybe it worked in the other way, unfortunately. Or stigmatizing any other community as well, because they're, you know, geographically speaking, you you could point from here to there and say, well, this group of people who happen to be whatever walk of life could could have that stigma attached to them. And and so it's all been done by health region here in British Columbia, but that's different elsewhere in the country. Is it not? I saw a lot of discussion about that from various news outlets going, why are we not getting that? Yeah. yeah BC, BC has been very reticent about dealing out uh, ethnic data, um, very regionalized data, things like that. I mean, you can look at um, uh, all around the world, you know, and, and, and various health jurisdictions are releasing that kind of very detailed, granular information, including ethnic information, which which has valid scientific grounds. It, if you can see that a particular community, a particular ethnic community, is being affected in a certain way, that has mm-hmm. scientific value. Um, 
But here in BC, we've been very, very reluctant to do that. Now, you can't argue with the results. Bonnie Henry has, has done an incredible job, and um, the results speak for themselves. But at the same time, I think instinctively as a journalist, um, I'm very, very pro uh, the release of information. I think in this case, I think we can see that had that information been released earlier, it could have been quite good, you know, in terms of tamping down this anti-Chinese sentiment that has really blossomed as well. In your piece, you do point out the fact that those who would uh, perpetrate in these hate crimes likely aren't watching uh, a Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix update or listening to CKNW right now. Uh, Perhaps they are. Um, But if if you're listening right now, please don't do that. Please don't attack people for their ethnicity. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. We're continuing our chat with Ian Young of the South China Morning Post on his latest column penned. Uh, Highly recommend that you read it. SCMP.com. Pick up a copy of the South China Morning Post. It is a a great read. And and Ian, prior to the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, the genomic sequencing that we learned about last Thursday and how that big zero over uh, Richmond when it came to uh, COVID-19 cases. And I want to quote provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, from, as you did in your article a couple of months ago, with regard to uh, withholding the regionalized COVID-19 statistics. She said it was for a couple of reasons, right? To avoid stigmatizing residents of heavily infected areas and to prevent complacency among places with low infection rates. So um, to what do you um, point to uh, that that w- the rest of Metro Vancouver and really British Columbia can learn from our Chinese-Canadian community uh, that is what is Richmond? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that um, if, you, if you cast your mind back to January and February, um, everyone took it seriously. Um, that's, that's a simple a way as you can put it, and you can do that in several ways. You can avoid crowded places, uh, you can wear a mask and you can be extremely cautious and you can wash your hands and you can not touch your face. Now, I don't know about, um, about hand washing and face touching, but um, it was very obvious that people were in fact wearing masks and they were in fact avoiding crowded places in Richmond way back in January and February. When we took that on board in the rest of the wider Vancouver community as well, that served us very well and that has served BC well uh, in keeping the, um, uh, the, the, the pandemic kind of at bay. Uh, but in the run-up to us taking it seriously, and I'm talking about mid-March, things weren't going great. I mean, if you look at um, that big proliferation of cases that came out of the dental conference that was held here mm. in Vancouver, you know, those cases, those seed cases for that, um, they came from Europe. Um, those now I don't know we don't know the ethnicity of the people involved, but um, certainly their recent travel wasn't from China. It wasn't from Wuhan. It was from Europe. Um, and similarly, you know, you look at the the cases that seeded uh, the long term care homes here. They didn't come from from China either. They came from Washington State, uh, and that obviously had a you know a very had a, had a terrible impact on our death toll. Um, you know, and and, and again. That didn't come from Wuhan. Uh, so, you know, I think that there are certainly lessons about the way that, 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 that Richmond dealt with it. Indeed. And, and getting those genomic sequencing numbers was really, truly fascinating on Thursday because the assumptions that would have been made prior to actually seeing the science behind and identifying the origin of that particular strain of COVID-19 it, it, 
completely different. So let's break down some of the numbers for our listener that you found, uh, like showing that what Richmond's data actually looks like in terms of the makeup uh, of, of Richmond versus the rest of the province. Sure. Um, well, I mean, Richmond, as we're talking about as of the end of May, so end of, end of May 31, Richmond's cumulative rate of infections per 100,000 people was only 44 infections per 100,000 people, you know, a total of about 80, 80 or 90 infections for the whole city. Uh, but wow. if you look at, at Vancouver, just over the river, it was twice as high, you know, 83 per per 100,000. Uh, and, and if you look at um, North Shore, 91 per 100,000. And if you go further afield outside of the, you know, what we technically call Greater Vancouver, if you go out to, to sort of Abbotsford and Fraser East, it was something something like 120 or 130, something like that. Um, so there are very substantial and very obvious differences there. Um, and yeah, the fact that, that Richmond did, had not, has not had uh, a single new infection since May 18, you know, that's, uh, that's quite remarkable too. It is. It gives me goosebumps, to be honest with you. We want to hear more of that. So what more can we learn? What are you hearing um, from your connections? And I mean, you and I were speaking about Wuhan, as mentioned, in January. Hmm. Um, when, when, the, when the consumer of news, perhaps in Richmond, is getting their information from mainland China, you're the, you're the person who told me that, that we are basically a suburb of Beijing and that there are many people here who only conserve, consume their news from mainland China. What are we learning now through those uh, news passageways that aren't obviously skewed by um, the government of, of, of China? Well, I mean, I, th- I think that what I'd like to say is that the, the information that people were getting back in January, the people who were focused on China, the ethnic Chinese people who were focused on mainland China, the same kind of information was available to everyone. The same kind of information um, was being reported by English language outlets, including the South China Morning Post, but including broad, broad general interest publications. The difference was how seriously you took it. The difference was, um, does the community see what's happening in China and think that that can happen here in Vancouver? If you're in Richmond, if you're ethnically Chinese and you have those connections to China, then the answer is certainly yes. But for the non-Chinese person who is consuming the same information... They see something happening in China, and that seems an awful long way away. Um, mm. But in this era of air travel, it's not. Now, um, I think that looking forwards, um, there is always going to be passing about whether or not China's data is accurate. But the global epicentre of, of, of COVID-19 now is not China. Um, the epicentres of, of COVID-19 are all around the world now, including just over the border to the United States. Uh, and I think that, you know, I think that we need to think very long and hard about um, things like the border, things like how we regulate travel between uh, between the United States and elsewhere and Canada and things like that. Um, the focus is off China. The focus is off mm. those places in East Asia that everyone was so worried about way back in January um, because... To a greater or lesser degree, they've been extremely successful in tamping it down. And I include mainland China in that because I think that if the infection had, in fact, got away from them, that would be obvious in ways that could not be covered up. No matter what. Ian, as always, it goes by too fast for me and a pleasure. Thank you very much for taking some time out for us today. Thank you, Jody. 
Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett. And as protests continue to grow around the globe, a specific demand to eradicate racism against the black community by cops, the outcry to outfit all police with body cameras is getting louder by the day. Now, we've heard experts both for and against implementing these cameras. And and today the RCMP actually said, quote, some of their operational officers will be outfitted with body cams. And still others are saying that these are just too expensive. Well, our next guest joins us to do the math on that it's too expensive claim. Kyla Lee, defense attorney with Acumen Law, has written about this on the lawyersdaily.ca and joins us now on the line. Hi, Kyla. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, great to have you because I really enjoyed reading your piece. Um, let's let's just hit it because you just you do right off the top. But basically, say I call baloney on that being too expensive. Can you unpack that for us a bit? Well, I mean, if you look at just the investment that you would make to purchase the body cameras to maintain them and train the officers to use them, yes, it's a lot of money. But there's going to be corresponding cost savings in the amount of court time that's going to be saved, the amount of disciplinary proceedings against police and investigations about police complaints that are going to be saved, um, and the amount of energy that police officers are going to have to put into their investigations and the amount of time they're going to spend in court when they're off duty. And in the end, the numbers are going to balance out, in in my view, in favor of purchasing the cameras. So the arguments that I've heard, and, and certainly, I mean, imagine had there not been a cell phone camera on the murder of George Floyd. Uh, still, those officers now charged, the one in particular with the knee on Floyd's neck, uh, will that video help them? Would the body camera of of officers carry more weight in a legal situation? How does that work? Absolutely. A body camera that's worn by a police officer is going to carry a lot of weight in a court situation because not only does it show what happened, a camera creates an objective record of what happened, but it also shows it from the perspective of the officer. So, you know, in cases like um, involving assaults or alleged assaults against police officers, what the officer was seeing and how they were perceiving what was coming towards them or their interaction with the other individual becomes fundamental. Um, if an officer is accused of, uh, of using excessive force, what was happening leading up to that and how it was perceived from the perspective of the person who was having to respond to it is going to be a significant question. And when you get that perspective, it allows the court to understand and to better put themselves in the shoes of the officer to then judge the conduct of that officer. And, you know, reading your piece really answered a number of uh, questions that were popping into my head as I was reading along. How, uh, how would it be handled? Or, you know, we've seen situations and scenarios, uh, certainly south of the border, where officers were wearing body cameras and forgot to or neglected to activate those cameras. How reliable can it be to, to put that cost up front to outfitting and training all the officers to wear these cameras, would there need to be a consequence to not having them activated? How would that footage then be disseminated? How would you as a lawyer be able to access that? I had so many questions on that front. Can you enlighten our listener? 
Well, lots of uh, body cameras that are available have continuous recording capability. So the police officers wouldn't even have to activate them. They would just automatically be activated at the beginning of the officer's shift. Um, and if an officer turned off the body cam, police uh, the police act could easily be amended to make that an offense that an officer could be investigated for. If there's a dispute in the evidence about what happened in a period of time where the body cam was turned off, um, then a court is not likely going to put much weight on the version of the officer because the question is, well, why did you stop the record of evidence that was happening at that point in time? And we've seen lots of instances in the States where body camera footage is is turned off and it's ultimately revealed that officers were planting drugs or officers were, were engaging in, in violent or uh, excessive force. Um, so, you know, the inference is that if you're going to turn off the camera, it's because you're not going to be doing something that you want to be seen doing on camera. For police officers, there's an incentive to have the camera rolling, and that's that you're going to cut down on the number of spurious complaints made about you because your conduct will be easily reviewable. And you do reference that in your piece. Again, I have to remind our listener, we're, we're speaking with Kyla Lee. You've heard her on this radio station many times. Uh, she is a lawyer with Acumen Law, wrote for thelawyersdaily.ca, if you want to read the entire piece that Kyla penned. Um, it, it, it's one of those sort of awkward questions here because Canadian law and the legal system works very differently than the United States. And much of what we're consuming right now is very American based and, and how our police force works is very different here than it, than it does in the United States. And we did hear this morning that the RCMP, as I mentioned, are going to um, equip some of their operational officers with these body cams. So it seems like some are are open to the idea or see the the relevance or see the value in, in that upfront spend. But I was listening to the Linda Steele show yesterday, and she had a political scientist on who who kind of said that this is really low-hanging fruit. Because when this sort of um, issue bubbles up, I mean, I can't that's the understatement of the century. When something as atrocious of what, as what happened to George Floyd comes into play, the, the outcry is loud for body cameras. But at the end of the day, does it really make a difference? Because so many U.S. cops are equipped with body cameras and still this level of violence is happening. Like that argument of this being sort of a flash in the pan, low hanging fruit thing, putting on body cams on everybody actually helping. What's the, what's the pushback from the... I call baloney on that. Well, to my mind, if you want to say that it's a huge expense because officers are still going to behave badly, what you're saying is that the potential of saving one person's life, the potential of saving at least one person from excessive force or being murdered by a police officer is not worth the expense. And to me, to Mm. devalue human life that much is just, it's offensive. Well said. We're going to open up the phone lines on this one. So if you're thinking you'd like to chime in on this, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, or star 9898 on your cell. Um, when it comes to um, defending someone who has suffered at the hands of perhaps a cop using excessive force or even feeling that they were wrongfully uh, accused of something that they simply just did not do. They were just in the space at the time. How would you pull that footage into a defense? How would you access it? 
the prosecution in Canada is obligated to turn over any information or documentation or video footage that exists that could potentially be relevant to the case, whether or not it exonerates a person, whether or not it's actually going to be used at trial. Anything that has the possibility of being relevant has to be disclosed. So um, as defense counsel, I would get a copy of it from the prosecution. Automatically. Yeah. Okay. So what about CCTV? Instead of putting body cams on everybody, why don't we just have cameras on every street corner? That's a huge privacy invasion um, because you're not at that point just capturing people's interactions with the police. You're capturing people in their day-to-day business as they're going about the world when they're doing nothing that would attract any attention. And, And to me, that's too much of an invasion of your privacy when there's an easier way to deal with the issue. I was just thinking that that might be something that a caller would say, because we all watch the British-based dramas, and it always comes back to the CCTV proving the perpetrator to be guilty. And it's one of those. And it's like, well, do we want that here? I don't think so. We we rail against uh, red light cameras here in Canada. So phone lines, as I said, open, and the phone board is lit up. And we got to start with Chuck in Burnaby, who has a question for Kyla, I understand. Hi, Chuck. Well, thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm in, um, my next door neighbor had a young man, um, an incident happened where he was beaten to death by a whole bunch of policemen uh, four years ago, almost four years ago. And there, I can't understand how the delayed, justice delayed and all that kind of stuff. There's been no findings or, or definitive uh, stuff from the independent uh, investigation people or uh, and it's uh, just a, it's the time that this is taken is beyond comprehension to me. Well, thank you for that check. Kyla, is, is this a situation or a scenario that having footage would move the system forward at a, at a faster pace in your opinion? Oh, absolutely, because then you'd have the Independent Investigations Office be able to access the body camera footage. Um, they wouldn't have to have you know, interviews with every individual person involved in the investigation, many people having lawyers and having you know, that process delay things and, and drag it out a lot longer. You can just take the video footage, review what happened, and then, if necessary, conduct further interviews or make a determination if something is obvious and apparent on the face of the video. All right, let's continue down the phone board. Greg from Richmond, welcome to the program. Well, hi there. Good afternoon. Um, You sort of took my thunder away when you talked about how the police and law enforcement uh, worldwide pretty much think that surveillance cameras are just the greatest thing and they want them everywhere. And I think that's the perfect argument for having the body cams. If they think surveillance cameras work great, body cams just extend that even further but i had a question for kyla if i'm photographing or videoing using my phone an incident with police and the cop comes over and says i want your phone for evidence do i have to turn it over to him It depends on the circumstances. Um, There are provisions that allow police to make demands um, for evidence um, in the course of an investigation, Um, but uh, I would not turn over anything to a police officer if you saw the police doing something wrong or something you perceive to be wrong without first consulting with a lawyer, and you should be entitled to legal advice before making the decision to hand it over. Well, what a great question. What an important answer. Sorry, I just wanted that to sink in. Go ahead, Greg. If if I say no and he says I demand it, 
do I have to turn it over? Or can I say, I will provide you with what is on my phone, or if you have a phone, I will transfer what I have over to your phone. You can offer to provide them a copy to email them some footage or to um, or to transfer it um, using like a, a, a drop um, system. Uh, to me, that would be much better than handing over your phone or your device to the police because then you're giving the police access to all of the information that's on your device. And also you're losing control of the footage that might become important if it gets deleted or destroyed by the police, either inadvertently or intentionally. Yeah, and because nowadays everybody has everything on their phone. Like, I mean, I know so many people, and we've discussed it before. You lose your phone or something, you're hooped. You've got yeah. everything on there. Literally everything. Greg, thank you very much for the phone call. I want to squeeze one more in here. Cam and Surrey, welcome to the show. Hi there. Um, I am definitely for police body cameras. But okay. if you look at the case of Tony Timpa, it was 2016 in America. He was handcuffed, laid on the ground. The cops put their knee into his back, and during the course of the interaction, he died. It was all on police uh, body cameras. In fact, you can actually hear the police making fun of him and saying, God, I hope he didn't die, right? That was in 2016. Three years for that footage to be released, and it did nothing to save George Floyd. You make a great point, Cam, and it, it does. It makes our skin crawl to think that there are people who would do that to another human being. And yet that is exactly why we're seeing the protest globally. It is time to stand together against that, uh, against brutality of that level in all walks of life. Uh, and certainly any any move we can make to to help Black Lives Matter enough like it shouldn't even be matter it should be worthy it should be celebrated and here we are still 52 years after uh, martin luther king jr and that speech it, it's just it, it's hard to imagine and it's really important i think to have these conversations and they're tough conversations to have kyla thank you for uh taking some time out for us today and answering questions uh from our listeners much appreciated thanks for having me jody vance in for jill bennett and you know this next segment, full disclosure, Jumi is my friend and my colleague, our next guest. And speaking about racism as a white woman with the privilege that comes with the color of my skin, I am not even going to begin to pretend to put myself into the shoes of a black woman and even more so a black mother. Uh, how I send my son out the door is incredibly different than how Jumi sends hers out the door. And in reading... Uh, a piece penned by my friend, who happens to be the producer of Charles Adler Tonight program, my colleague, Jumi Dapo Ogonzola, joins us now on the line. And Jumi, I've read this piece, I don't know, 10 times, and every time it brings me to tears. Share your motivation for something so raw and so personal as to writing a letter to your son and publishing it on the Global News website. Hi, Jody. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share my story. And um, just before I go on, I would like to say that um, I've known you now for about four years, and you happen to be one of the most amazing people that I have met, someone who has always held my hand, be very, being very supportive to me all through. And um, in writing this piece, going to your question, it's based on all of the happenings in the last couple of days 
where the kid, my son specifically, has been seeing all of this in the news. And if you ask him, he's able to tell you the whole story because he's watching the news, he's getting into it. And I just thought as a mother and knowing after speaking to several other black mothers that I know around, they're all having to help the kids understand what's happening even though it's not what we want to do to them at this age, but it's just a reality of what it is and helping them know that, you know, sooner rather than later, they would have to, would have to have this conversation. So the stories and what's been happening is what prompted me to pencil down this. And I titled it Letter to My Seven-Year-Old Son. Yes, to my seven-year-old son and to every other black woman who is having to raise a black boy or a black girl or black kid around this time. So many of the things that you say and you, I feel it would be more, I think it's important that your words aren't read by me. What are some of the messages that you most would like somebody to hear listening right now who maybe wouldn't click on the letter to your seven-year-old son? What are some of the things that are the messages for those who don't know what it's like to spend a day, an hour, a second, being somebody whose life seems to just not matter as much by way of the color of their skin. Okay, so I will take the listener into a part of the piece where I said that I lay awake in my bed hoping that I am wrong, that you won't have to experience this. I pencil down all of those realities but still having a space in my heart to stay positive, to say that I'm hoping this doesn't happen because I do not want it to happen. Many black parents do not want this to happen, but it's what's happening and we're still saying there can be a change. We all, irrespective of your skin color, be you yellow, black, red, pink, can still try to see how we can make the world a better place where we see each other as one, not by being black or by being white or by speaking to any of those um, skin tones. And I went further, I said, I'm so sorry that you have to grow up in a world where some lives matter more than others. And this is what's been happening when we talk about systemic racism, where a race lays claims to superiority and the only offense you've committed is being black or being born by black parents. And that should not really be an offense. That's not what I see is wrong. I appreciate people for who they are. And that's what we want our kids or any kid out there to be, to be young, innocent, not having to deal with racial issues at a very tender age. And this, this is a conversation we tend to have with kids of color, black kids very early on in life. My seven-year-old is, you know, as young as been in kindergarten, he's now in grade one, has had issues at school of people calling him a black boy. My daughter has been told she can't play with a group of people because she's not their skin tone. Yes, the school would take it up, but of course, these are things that these kids would tend not to forget as time goes on. They've been called black, burned chicken nuggets. They've been called burned popcorn. As a parent, this will hurt. This cuts deep, deep down because you just want your kids to be seen as every other kid who is happy, the happy-go-lucky ones who make friends, who want to play with everybody. And that's where this piece came from, that place of, I don't want people to clutch their purses when my son is walking by. 
I don't want his very tall stature to be a threat to a law enforcement officer because right now he's the tallest in his grade. And I, I see that as a pride as a mother. But, you know, stories and events have made us realize that stature at times is a threat to people. That's not what I want him grow up to grow up knowing. And, you know, this is where this comes from as a whole. Like, this is who they are. They're happy kids. They're just take them as kids, right? When they want to work, don't let their names be a barrier. Don't let their skin tones be a barrier to the kind of growth they would have in a work environment. And that's all this is all about. The name calling. Is that learned behavior? Is that from the parent of the child that calls the name, in your opinion? In my opinion, I think it's about the conversations and the things we allow our kids watch. For example, when my daughter was referred to as a bun chicken nugget, I took it up, I went to school and said, this is not right. And after speaking with the kid involved, it's about, oh, I saw it on a show. So it goes back to what kind of shows a grade two student is watching and mom is not monitoring, right? It's about mm. what they are saying in the house about these people who are not the same skin tone with us. It should not be the responsibility of a black parent alone to tell the kids about race. I think it should be all of us. It's about us teaching our kids to understand that we're all different in different ways. And those are different, make some people lesser of a human being than others? No. It just shows the beauty of the human race, that we're all diverse and we come from different backgrounds and we all bring different things to the table, which are unique. And so it's about, you know, for me, it's what are you saying to your kids? I send my kids off to school every morning telling them that you matter, you're very important, don't let anyone speak down on you, don't let anyone speak down to you, just go hold your head up high and be the best that you can. It's your words are just resonating so deeply with me, my friend. Thank you very much for sharing so uh, personally. And what I'm hearing as the entitled white woman on the other side of this conversation who's trying to raise a child that would would stand beside your son at school and say, you know, do not speak to him that way. What you know, try to um, stand up in the face of racism. So I'm I'm trying to evolve from being an an inclusive parent to being anti-racist parent. So what are some of the things, how can we arm our children to even if they see that YouTube video or they watch that inappropriate show, to be able to process that in a way that they can learn? Because we won't be able to stop the inundation of negativity and and really what is hate speak uh, that's out there. What can we do to, to sort of move our children towards growing up as anti-racists? I think it starts from when we say racism, in my article I said racism as a whole, not only anti-black, anti-Asian racism, but encouraging our kids to stand up against what they think is wrong. This could even mean someone bullying someone else, right? Being able to say what you're doing is not right. At times the person involved who is being bullied who, or who who is being discriminated against is shocked at that time. You're not even able to put the words together. But someone else who is around there, who is watching, should be able to say, oh, what you've said is not right. What you've done is not right. So it's about us helping our kids 
from a very young age understand that they need to stand up for what is right. What is right means do not be present, do not bully someone, and do not be there when someone is being bullied because of their race or their gender or whatever it is that they've been, they've been picked up because of. So I think it's just having that conscious conversation and helping them understand that these are before they grow up to be 20, 30, let's make them see that kids are all the same, right? And by the Mm. time they grow up older, they're able to relate to a friend they've known since kindergarten who is innocent and they're able to relate to that. And that's an experience they will carry with them for a longer time. So it's just about having the right conversation. Yeah, go ahead, Judy. No, I, I agree. I'm, I'm echoing your sentiments. Having the right conversation, what I'm hearing is don't be a bystander. Don't be a parenting bystander to what you might laugh off and make sure that that we are all teaching our children from the earliest possible and really this defining moment because we are going through this uh, with kids who are largely being taught at home, being homeschooled, watching the news cycle, hearing the news cycle, seeing these protests, seeing the the slogan of Black Lives Matter, explain it and explain it deeply and, and in words that can be consumed. And I, I definitely uh, urge everyone to have a look at Jumi's piece. Uh, it is on the Global BC website, is it not, Jumi? Yes, it's on the Global News. Yeah. Global News. Yeah. CA. It, it is beautifully written. And, and I'm so grateful for you taking some time out. It's very awkward for you and I who have personal conversations all the time. As you said, we've known each other for, for years. And, and I very much appreciate you helping to teach me be a better parent, Jumi. Thank you. Thank you so much, Judy, for having me on. That's Jumi Dapo Ogonzola, producer of Charles Adler Tonight, and our very, very good friend. Jody Vanson for Jill. You know, if you were listening yesterday, you heard Trisha Barker, Park Board Commissioner, on with me to talk about how the Park Board staff were going to explore long-term plans to reduce traffic in Stanley Park. And it was all ahead of the big meeting slated for 6.30 last evening. And I said to Trisha at the end of our discussion yesterday that we're going to need to talk today. So last night's big Park Board meeting did go down. Uh, There were a few other things on the agenda, but the future of Stanley Park was certainly the major piece on the table. And as I said, leading up to this, we were talking about how it's just a motion to move to a study. Well, apparently it was a little bit more than that. So Park Board Commissioner Trisha Barker is on the line with us. And uh, thank you for doing this, Trisha. I really do appreciate this. My pleasure, Jody. Can you walk us through what happened last night? Uh, Well, there's two parts to the story. Um, I know that everyone was uh, eagerly awaiting to hear what was going to happen with the motion that was brought forward about to keep Stanley Park open. Sorry, to I'm getting them all mixed up now um, to reduce the traffic in the park. And that motion, um, you know, we we had the full discussion on that motion and tried to um, talk about the merits of letting all the people who were wanting to speak to it before it went to staff. And, uh, you know, we even got letters from the City of Vancouver Seniors Advisory Committee and the City of Vancouver Persons with Disabilities Advisory Committee all agreeing that um, having people speak to this before staff made um, a decision and before even the big consultation happened, everyone... um, uh, gave their two cents about uh, why um, listening to people before it went forward would be a good idea. We put that forward, but we still lost the vote uh, two to five. 
And so the motion went forward as it stood. But with the amendment that they would make sure that they did talk to the People with Disabilities Advisory Committee. So we um, lost that and we were not going to be speaking to the people before the staff did the report. But we did find out earlier uh, in the evening the plans for reopening Stanley Park. And we were not aware of this beforehand and found out that um, the park will not be opening for a while because they are going to do the work to close one lane and um, put the bikes back on the seawall and um, uh, close one lane to have uh, bikes and other non-motorized vehicles in that lane um, because of COVID. And our staff has done tons of work, tons of really, really, really good work to keep everyone safe in our parks, but now um, they've decided that that is the next step that has to be done before Stanley Park opens. And that was the other big piece of news last night. Okay, so hold on a second. Let me just understand this. So the park is, because we're in phase two now of reopening. It's summertime, almost. We're we're just a couple of weeks away from the solstice, right? And and here we are. Stanley Park has been closed to vehicles uh, so that cyclists could use the roadway to leave room on the seawall for people uh, who are walking or uh, people with disabilities or people that don't want to be buzzed by a cyclist on the seawall because it is busier than it typically would be, I guess. And, And so now we're looking at reopening the park, but that is going to be delayed because we have to make a separated bike lane on the actual roadway in Stanley Park before it opens during a pandemic? Yes. That was the news we got. And um, I think uh, I, along with some other people, were really surprised about that. And, um, you know, I join you in that. I I join you in being surprised by that. Before we open it during the pandemic, we're going to do construction to do. Will will it be like a fully separated bike lane with like a barrier and everything all the way around the park? How long is this going to take? There's going to be some sort of barrier, but we are not able to get to the specifics of all of that. But um, quite ironic, because when you and I finished the conversation yesterday, I said the problem with one um, lane in the park is if you're a car trying to get anywhere to the tea house for lunch or whatever, and you got stuck behind the horse carriage, you were not going to get to the park. It would take you an hour. So yeah. we, we laughed. But, you know, that's, um, that's how we're going to be opening up the park. Is there any middle ground here, Tricia? Is, is, is there any possibility here if it does go to a, a position where citizens will have a say to sort of broaden it out? Because I think there's a lot of middle to be had here. There are people that are like, you know what? We're a very cycling friendly city. We have, you know, 8th Avenue runs across the west side and it is a roadway that is a designated bike path. So you have to be mindful and aware that if you're driving down West 8th Avenue, that you have to uh, give space, safe space to cyclists. And it's not a bike path. It's not a separated bike lane. Could that not be something that we find a way to do in Stanley Park? Because, I mean, the legitimate question is, how many months of the year are people going to really commute around Stanley Park on a bike? Uh, there's many questions I think uh, that that you know are out there for many people, and and I'm hearing um, so many comments from people today about uh, wondering what is going to be happening and when they can just get in the car and take a loved one 
yeah. for a trip around the park. There's there's so many things. I mean, the part about the pandemic that is very um, troubling for people, and as we say, it's it's hurt seniors the most. Uh, so there's a lot of questions here. Um, you know, can I focus and, and on that of, for one sec? Can I focus yeah. on that for one second? Because people might not know this about you because we introduced you. Vancouver Park Board Commissioner Trisha Barker, you actually have a day job. And when I see people attacking you on Twitter and th- and basically saying you've got an agenda, uh, your agenda is very inclusive. And because would you tell people what your day job is, please? I'm a personal trainer for seniors and people with terminal illnesses. And I can tell you, if you saw the clients that I've been with this morning, um, yeah, it's 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 um, it's 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 been a day when you get attacked on Twitter, and then you have to basically suck it up and and go and know that um, you know I have to be the smiling face to someone that is in a position that none of us can you know even imagine. And, um, but, you know, my clients, I, you know, it, a, a lot of them bring me a lot of joy. So that's, that's the good part of my day. A good part of your day, but those clients who have a terminal illness or are a senior with a disability would like to go around Stanley Park before they pass and don't have the opportunity to do that when the quote unquote reduced traffic is in play or the park is closed until there is a designated bike lane. Like you're fighting this fight for very real reasons and they're not anti-bike reasons. They're not anti-bike at all. And I actually lost one of my clients bike, but yeah, what, you know, with the one specific gentleman, he, he, he was in a wheelchair and was not doing well for the last year. And now he's in a care home and he can't get out. And, and he's, you know, he loves Stanley park. And he would comment to me about, I should keep the parks in better shape. You know, he used to give me a bad time. And Mm. he's never going to get to that park again. And, um, you know, but I think that if more people heard stories about that or got to know people who were facing those um, issues, I think a lot of people might think differently about um, making sure that some of these uh, people who need our help the most uh, get to see some of the things that they treasure the most. Indeed. I I had a guest on from the Rick Hansen Foundation who um who who enlightened me on a term that 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 is often used within the foundation to those of us who can do everything. Uh we're tabs, we're temporarily able bodied because all of us at some point in our lives will find ourselves incapable or unable to do some of the things that we take for granted now, like perhaps being able to cycle around Stanley Park and or even walk around Stanley Park or even wheel around Stanley Park. There are great athletes who are are uh, struggling with with full able bodied, you know, they have a disability of some sort. Some of the greatest athletes I know are, are those who, who fight through um, their their physical limitations but here we are having this conversation about the jewel our park the center really of british columbia is it number two park in in the world on TripAdvisor? i believe is that is that right trisha yep it, it is number two we got to keep that open for all people and and certainly you know the the middle ground to be found and i hope that the the that the hardcore lobby peace. The people who are attacking you on Twitter, just calm it down just a little. And let's do this in this together thing for real on all fronts. And think about the people who aren't able-bodied, who do need to be able to access 
at Stanley Park. Like I, I, I do have skin in the game. I, my dad's in a home. You know, my parents wouldn't be able to go for the long walk through Van Dusen or Bouchard Gardens. Stanley Park is their option to to go for that Sunday drive or a Tuesday drive for that matter. So it, it bodes more conversation, I think. So I'm going to open up the phone lines in the next segment. So if you've got an opinion on this, you'd like to chime in and you can disagree with what I'm saying or what Trisha has said, that's fine. I'll just, let's, let's keep it, let's keep it, uh, an effort looking for the middle. How about that? Phone board's lit up. Let's go. James in Vancouver, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Hi, Hi Jordan. Hi. I just wanted to know, where are they getting the money for all this? If the city's broke, $100 million, what is it, $100 million they're losing this year or something? Where do they get the money to build this bike lane? Also, how is the emergency vehicle going to get through if something happens on the other side of the park? Let alone Those are two very good questions. I, I Sorry, sorry, James. I, I feel like the first question is park board budget is separate from the city budget. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'd have to ask Trisha or John Cooper or anybody from the park board. If you, if you have that information, email me, Jody at cknw.com. But a good question about emergency vehicles being able to get around that park uh, with one lane, that could be extraordinarily difficult. What was the other point you were going to make, James? I just wanted to know, like... Um just getting in and out of Brockton Oval or the tea house or something like that like those businesses are just going to be hampered or parking along the side there how what are they doing with all the parking yeah agreed it is it is going I don't know the answer to those things because this is all coming at us without public consultation like it's going to staff the motion happened now it's going to staff changes are being made before you and I and everybody else who really own the park it is our park uh, we should be able to to have the opportunity to ask these questions before the first uh, piece of concrete is laid on a separated bike lane. James, thank you for your call. Let's go to Sean in Vancouver. Your thoughts on this. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, I would like, well, at least the seawall to go back the way it was. You know, we've been riding on that seawall forever. I was born and raised here, 60 years old. Um, it's an inherent right. Um, the roads, we need to calm traffic, definitely. And I think you should put a bike lane through there. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Can, can I ask you a question, though? Because I agree with you. Calming the roadway there, I agree. And, and share the road with cyclists, also agree. Uh, and, and cyclists back on the seawall. I'm 52, born and raised in Vancouver. It is, I, I don't know that I could cycle around the roadway at Stanley Park, but I know for sure that I could cycle around the seawall. Uh, yeah, at my fit, I cycled that seawall almost daily. I really? did before all of this. Yeah, I live down Granville Island. I ride across the bridge, and I nice. do that. That's my exercise, and so you that's miss what it. I like to do. Yes. So, okay, I well, it's it. going to... It's going to reopen for you. That is my understanding from Trisha as that is going to yeah. be available for you. It's just the cars that aren't going to be able to go around for, just, for some time. One other quick thing. I've made sure. numerous calls to Parks Board... Uh, counselors or sorry commissioners and not one of them called me back it's kind of funny i don't know really voicemails and everything you you. know what try their try their email address go go to the the city of vancouver uh website they're really accessible emails as are all of your city councilors for that matter you can you can easily find their emails it does go straight to them it doesn't go through a bunch of red tape first so give that give that a shot sean See, see how that works. I, I'm not sure how many people have been in the office that much. I think everybody's sort of working remotely. So we'll give them a break on that. Thank you very much for, for that, Sean. Let's go to Ron in Vancouver. You're up next. Your thoughts. 
hey, I've also, I'm also hit that 60 range. I was born and raised in Vancouver. Uh, you know, we used to drive around Stanley Park when I was a kid. When a company come into town, I drive them around. That's the first thing we do is drive around Stanley Park, go to the tea house. And I just, I just don't understand how a couple of people can make a decision to take away everything, especially when the vehicles have paid the taxes from the gases to everything to build this. How do they all of a sudden have all the money to build this? Are they going to double the, the parking fees now? And, and like you say, with the emergency vehicles, how can one or two people just change everything without having to talk to anybody? I just, I've never understood that. And it makes me absolutely crazy because I was born here. My gas taxes, my property taxes have paid for the park and have paid for the wall. Cyclists pay nothing. When I was a kid, you used to have to license your bike. So the city made money off your bike license. They get everything for free and they don't pay for it. And I got to pay for it. But yet I keep losing it. I feel your frustration, Ron, uh, again, as a born and raised Vancouverite. What I'm what the overarching uh, message here, get involved in municipal politics. Vote, vote know the platforms and vote for the people on the park board, vote for people in city council uh, and, and make sure that your needs and wants as a Vancouverite are reflected in those who you vote for.